the ancient Near Eastern world that these ancient Hebrew people that God was using and bringing together and bringing towards their promised land, the world in which they inhabited was quite literally filled with gods and deities. Each little region, each little people group had not only one God for their tribe or for their people, but often dozens, hundreds, even thousands. For the Hittite people, they had Anukai, Enzeli, Apollunus, Aplu, Erina, Arma, and that's just the A's. We could keep going on and on and on. The Canaanites had gods like Asherah and Baal and a particularly awful god named Molech. And part of worship for Molech was child sacrifice at his temple. The Egyptians had gods like Osiris and Isis and Horus and Seth and Anubis and Ammon and over 1,500 other gods that had names and others that didn't. And so what tended to happen is you could be somewhat of a deity collector as you move from place to place. If you were to travel outside your time, outside of your people, outside of your tribe, then there were plenty of gods to choose from. And if you found a god that happened to work or provide something that your gods didn't, you could just add them to the list. And the same thing is true in a certain extent for us. Of course, there are other religions and faiths and worldviews all over the world. But also John Calvin says that we, all of us, are idol makers, our hearts are idol makers from the womb, from the time that we're born. We're looking for gods. We're looking for things to worship. We're looking for deities to add to that collection, something to serve, something to give us meaning, something to give us value. And then in comes this God. This deity from this tiny tribe of wonders, this tiny tribe of former slaves. And he begins to make some pretty incredible demands, saying things like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You'll have no other gods before me. You won't make any idols for yourself. You will worship me and you will worship me alone. And that takes a lot of nerve. What gives this God the right to say that he is, in fact, not only the best God to choose from, that he's the only God worthy of worship and admiration and praise? What makes this God of this little group of people so different? Again, that leads us back to the beginning. And over the past couple of weeks, we've begun looking at this incredible book, the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking through the first 12 chapters of Genesis in a series that we're calling Introducing God. As God takes the very beginning of his big story of scripture, where he talks about the, not only creation, but redemption and eternal destiny for his people. As God is telling this big story, his introduction matters. And this is how God chooses to reveal himself to us and how God chooses to let us know who he is, what he's like, and how he should be worshipped. And we started last week unpacking the first two verses of this first chapter of God's big story. And we've already seen that even in these short three sentences and these two verses, God reveals so much about his character and who he is. Last week, we saw God reveal himself as eternal. 
that he has no beginning, that God has always existed. And because of that, he is ultimate and supreme and sovereign. He is the uncreated creator of the universe. We saw that God is creative. And everything that we see around us, including ourselves, that we are God's handiwork, that he has made us in his image for his glory, and that like a divine artist, put passion into his work. And we also realize that God is gracious, that he didn't have to do any of this. God was perfect and completely holy on his own long before we came along building churches and singing songs. God didn't need us, and yet he wanted us. And that creation itself is God's first act of grace, giving us something that we didn't deserve or that didn't add anything to him. And yet he loved us enough that before we drew a breath, he wanted us as a part of his world. And today, we're going to look at some of the truly unique characteristics of God, the things that set him apart and help us to understand how wonderfully different he is than us and how amazing he is and how worthy of worship he is. And so today we're going to look and see God as the only God, as the triune God, and as an all-powerful God. And again, pretty much all of that is coming out of these first two verses of Genesis where God teaches us so much as he says so little. And so let's look at that passage again from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, first and foremost, we just want to thank you for who you are, that you're not a God that we designed, but you are a God who is, you are who you are, and you have been for all eternity. And so, God, we just confess the times when we want you to be something else or when we put other things in your place and worship created things instead of the one who created them. Fathers, we look at your word today. Help us to have a clear picture of who you are. Help us to know you more. And through that, help us to be better worshipers of you. Help us to sing differently. Help us to pray differently. Help us to even see coming together as a church as a completely different thing, recognizing that we are coming together to worship and honor and serve a God who is bigger and more awesome and more wonderful than we could ever imagine, and yet closer and more intimate than we could ever believe. Teach us to find wonder in who you are, to find comfort and mystery and assurance of faith in the things that we can know and understand. So speak to us through your word today, and we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we see here is that he is indeed the only God. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7, God is speaking, and he says this. 
It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me that people may know from the rising of the sun from, and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, some important background about this passage. This is written to, this is God speaking to Cyrus, in particular Cyrus the Great, one of the kings of Persia. And Cyrus the Great has a really important part in the biblical story, in the process of redemption for God's people. God's people had been in exile, had been taken out of the promised land, had been taken out of the place that God had given them and brought into Babylon and were living in a place that didn't belong to them as aliens and as captives. And then, as the Persian Empire comes in and takes over the Babylonian Empire, this king, King Cyrus the Great, issues the edict that allows the Hebrew people to start going home, to start reconstructing the temple of God, to start rebuilding the walls and helping the people come back to their roots and come back to their worship of God. And so he has a really important role to play in the story of God's people, and so ultimately in the story of Christ coming into the world to bring salvation into the world. And God is looking at this king, a king who, just like all of the other Persian kings, would have worshipped a wide variety of deities. And he's saying, listen, Cyrus, you're doing all these things, but the reality is I'm the one working behind it. I'm the one leading you and guiding you. And I love how he speaks to him. He says, I know you and I gave you your name, even though you don't even know who I am. All these things that you've seen happen around you are all the work of my hand. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in me or not. The reality is I am the one working all of these things in light of my plan and my will. What's even more amazing about this story is that it was likely written about 80 years before Cyrus was even born. And it reminds us of this incredible plan that God has and that he is in control and governs all things. But I love, over and over again, God gives these constant reminders. And he speaks this way to, to kings and to royalty all through Scripture. He says multiple times in this passage, I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I call you by name. It's me that does all these things, even though you don't know me. In verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And so he's saying, listen, I am not another God to add to your wall. I'm not another statue to put on your shelf. I am the only God that there is, and there is no other option to worship anyone but me, because besides me, there is not a God that exists. 
He says, I'm the one that forms light and creates darkness and brings well-being and calamity. I do all of these things, no one else. And again, as we looked last week, every time Scripture is making this case for the existence of God, it comes back to the beginning. Every time Scripture is making the case that we should worship God alone, it comes back to the beginning and reminds us that in the beginning there was nothing but God, and everything that exists exists because of God. And in the same way, Genesis chapter 1, in perhaps fewer words, but just as strongly, says, in the beginning, God, no one else. There's no shared credit here. This isn't good work. This isn't group work. It is just God. Unlike so many of the other ancient religions, there was no epic struggle between a multitude of deities. There was one God, one plan, one purpose, and that God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis breaks into time and space breaks into a world filled with deities and false gods. And in the same voice, that same voice that said, let there be light in the beginning, now declares to us, I am the only God. In fact, if we fast forward into the book of Exodus, when Moses is being called to go and free those people out of slavery and out of captivity in Egypt, he says, listen, they're going to ask who's sending them. They're going to want to know which God is sending me and which God I'm coming in your name. And so I need to know your name. And he says, you can tell them that I am is sending you. The essence of existence, the core of what it means to be, he is saying that is who I am. I am the foundation point of everything that exists. God is the beginning and the foundation of all of creation. And this truth rests at the core of the Christian faith. That there is one God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and everything has come from him. And so because of that, he is the one that deserves all honor and glory and praise. Genesis calls his readers, in fact demands its readers, to exclusivity to an exclusive affection and worship of the one true God. Because otherwise it wouldn't make sense. Why would we want to put our hope and our faith and our trust and our worship and our admiration into something that doesn't exist and something that can't do anything at all? And this is the foundation on which all of the rest of Scripture rests. As we look through the Bible over and over and over again, we are reminded that he is God, he is God alone, and because of that, he is the only one that should be worshipped. Again, those first two commandments. He starts by saying, remember, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I conquered you out of Egypt. That great Pharaoh who ruled over most of the known world had no power to stand against me. And so I walked into Pharaoh's house and I brought you out because I wanted to. And I set you free. And because of that, you are going to recognize that I am the Lord, your God. And you're not going to worship anyone else but me. And you're not going to make for yourself little idols that you can worship based on things that don't have any power. But you are going to worship me and worship me alone. In Deuteronomy 6, we see this battle cry for the people of Israel as God says, I am the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one. 
and that you should worship the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It continues on in the New Testament as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In John 1.18, it says that no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, and he, Jesus, has made him known. 1 Timothy 1.7 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. In Jude one twenty five it says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. From Genesis until the very end of Scripture, we see over and over and over again, the Bible is saying there is one God to the only God, and because of that, He alone is worthy of our praise and our affection. Scripture is very clear that there is only one, and so we have to ask ourselves, why are we so easily courted by false deities with empty promises? And again, we can say, well, listen, I don't worship other gods. I don't, I don't have idols on my shelf. I don't worship those kind of things. But Scripture is clear, and we've already talked about this a little bit, that anything that we put in the place of God, anything in which we try to find our ultimate source of meaning and purpose, things that we look to in our times of needs, those are things that we can create idols out of. And just like the ancient people who would worship the sun and moon and stars that were good things created by God, but not things worthy of worship, we are able to put things in those blocks as well. Whether it's worshiping relationships or money or power or notoriety, all of these things, our jobs, our educations, all these things that we can put in these blanks that can be good things but are not ultimate things. Anytime we trust in those more than we trust in God, we are doing exactly what the ancient people would do by turning away from the good holy God that created all things and trusting in something that is created and that can't give us anything more than what it was designed to give. And so we have to be really reflective as we see these words in Genesis and as we see this echo throughout all of Scripture that there is only one God. And we have to begin to ask ourselves, what things, what gods with little g's do we allow to steal our affections from God? As Drew leads us in our confession of sin every single week, one of those things that we should be asking is, what are the gods in my life that I am putting over the one true God? What are the things in my life that I am worshiping more, that I'm giving more of my time and my affection to than I am to God? And then we need to hear those words in Genesis 1 and recognize those idols in our lives and make war on those things and destroy those idols in our lives, put them in their proper place and cling to the one and only God because he is all there is. And he has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for all time is the only one worthy of that kind of worship. He's the only God. And then in Genesis and also throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that he is the triune God. Now, it is extremely alarming when you're speaking to someone and there is just one of them and you know their name. Let's say their name is Johnny. And Johnny decides to go with third person on you, right? When Johnny starts saying, hey, Johnny's really glad to be here. And you think, well, I mean, Johnny's a common name, so maybe there's another Johnny coming with him. My name is Chris. Very common name. 
five Chris's in my ninth grade geometry class, geography class. It was very, very confusing. And if one of us would have spoken in third person, the teacher might have had an emotional breakdown because that would have been a very difficult thing to sort out. And so when somebody starts speaking in that third person about themselves, it can be very confusing and very alarming. Now, if someone starts using the royal we, and they are not royal, if they are royal, it's still weird. But if they use that royal we, and they are not royalty, then it gets all kinds of confusing. If you don't know what the royal we is, it's using that plural pronoun to describe you who are one. So Johnny is really glad to be here, but we got to go. And then you start thinking, am I a bad host? Did Johnny bring somebody with him? Is there another Johnny here? Do they have to leave? Has there been another Johnny here? And I haven't noticed this entire time. I'm such a bad person. No, Johnny's just weird. (laughs) And so it can be really alarming and a little upsetting when we see that happen. And then sure enough, if we fast forward a little bit through Genesis, we see that take place. We're going to look over the next few days or the next few weeks at Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through the rest of the chapters. We see this beautiful picture of creation. And so we see God start to shape and form and fill the world and create everything that we know to be our reality. And God speaks right off the bat saying, let there be light. And it's such a beautiful passage. And we see God move saying, let there be this and let there be that. And he's speaking about all the things that are being created. And then he gets to creating humanity. And God begins to speak in this beautiful poem in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. But before that happens, God speaks to himself. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if we're just casually reading that passage, that can be shocking. Especially if you have any history in church where you've read through scripture or you've been trained and taught that there is only one God because that's all there's supposed to be, right? Remember that whole thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is one. The Lord your God is one. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the only God. He said it to Cyrus like 500 times in three sentences. And so how in the world is there this us? Where does that come from? Who are these other people that God is talking about? Last week, we looked at one of the great mysteries about the nature of God. These things that are really hard to understand. That God is eternally existent. That God has no starting point, that God has no birthday, that God has just always been and always will be, and that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we have a birthday and we will one day have a death day. We understand that things begin and things end, and when things don't have a beginning, when God says that he was always here, that's hard to wrap our minds around, and it feels very mysterious. And mystery often tends to frustrate us. Even as children, we have a tendency to get toys and take them apart and figure out how they work and put them back together because we want to know what makes this little duck walk across the floor. We want to understand things. We don't like things that we can't fully wrap our minds around. And so it's often really frustrating, especially when it comes to God. Because we want to know all the answers. We have really big books that describe God to us. And we believe that it's the word of God. And so when we come to something in that text that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, it can be really overwhelming and really frustrating. But really, it should lead us to awe. 
Because if we had a God that we could fully figure out and that we could fully understand, that we could really wrap our minds around, that wouldn't be a very big God. In fact, when we find something that's mysterious and something that's hard for us to grasp, it should lead us into this deeper exploration and a desire to know as much as we possibly can. But then when we get to the point where we can't fully wrap our minds around things, we should just step back and be in awe and wonder at the beauty of what we can't fully fathom. And one of the greatest mysteries inside of Scripture about the nature of God is what we have called the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons. Now, at the Christian Learning Center where I teach during the week, with our fifth grade class, we do what we call these big questions and big answers. And so each week we have a big question that has something to do with one of the core doctrines, one of the core beliefs about Christianity, about the nature of God and salvation and all these things. So I ask them a big question, and they've got a written answer that they give back, and they memorize, and it helps teach these incredible truths. And the one that always causes the most problems is the one about the Trinity. The question is, God exists forever in how many persons? And they respond with three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they read this, and they're fifth graders, and so they have been through some some basic grammar now, and that doesn't sound right to them. They're like, wait, one God and three persons? It should be people, because we are trained from a very young age to be little grammar police, even though language is clearly something that's relative and something that's a social construct and something that should be allowed to breathe and change over time, and we should have freedom to move around in language. But there are these oppressive people who write these books and say, no, this is how you should speak. And I know this is hypocritical, because I just got on to Johnny for using third person, and it's a little double standardish, but I don't care, because language is relative, and this is how I want it to be. But my children just can't seem to wrap their minds around this idea, not just the idea of God as three and one, but the fact that we're using the word persons instead of people is very confusing. And to see this idea of God as Trinity, as three and one, we have to look through the entire narrative of Scripture, which on top of the fact that this is a difficult truth to grasp and understand, also you really have to work to see it in Scripture. One of the places where it is most clear is in the baptism of Jesus. As Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John, after a little bit of of negotiation, finally agrees to baptize Jesus, and he dips him under the water, and he brings them back up, and all of a sudden, we see the fullness of God on display. As the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, it says, like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But Genesis also reveals to us the Trinitarian nature of God. And again, that is that God exists. There's one God, but he has three individual persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not three parts, not three pieces. Individual persons acting and moving in certain ways with clearly defined roles, but it is one God, and that's not like anything that we have. We can try to make examples of it. I've heard a lot of them that try really hard and sometimes can help us understand some, but really they don't fit. Like one is ice. Somebody can say water can be three things, right? It can be a vapor. It can be a liquid. It can be a solid. And so water is one thing, but it can also be three things, but that doesn't really work because water is not all three of those things at one time. There is nothing else in the universe like God. 
where we can say he is one and he is also three. And it doesn't fully make sense to our brains because we are one thing and that's all. But that's how scripture reveals him to be. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. God is there. God the Father is creating. But then if we look elsewhere inside of scripture, we start to see that there's more going on in Genesis 1 than meets the eye. Augustine, one of the church fathers, says, Here it is then, that God, the Almighty Father, made and established the whole of creation through his only begotten Son. That is through his wisdom and power. And he uses two words. He says consubstantial and co-eternal, meaning that God is one in the same substance and has been for all of eternity. And then he says not only does he create him through the wisdom and power of the Son, but he creates him in unity with the Holy Spirit, who is again in the same nature and the same substance God and has been for all of eternity. And Scripture echoes this truth. John 1, 1 through 5, that we've been reading as our confession of faith each and every Sunday, says, in the beginning, and John chooses those words very carefully, in the beginning was the word. And that word, logos, is referring to Jesus, the incarnate word of God, the physical word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. John says Jesus was there in the beginning, creating and moving. He was with God and he is God. Hebrews 1 and 2, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Paul says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Over and over and over again, Scripture reminds us that Jesus was present with God in the beginning and that Jesus is God and that Jesus helped create the entirety of the world, that God created all things through the wisdom of Christ and for Jesus, that Jesus is God who created the heavens and the earth. In fact, Augustine makes the case that Jesus is very self-aware of this as he walks and as he ministers. And at one particular time in the book of John, in John chapter 8, Jesus is in conflict with religious leaders. And they're basically asking him to give him their credentials. And Jesus says, these are the things that I have taught you in the beginning. And Augustine makes the case that Jesus is making that declaration that in the beginning, he was there. In fact, Augustine translates Genesis chapter 1 kind of loosely as a paraphrase. And he takes that word beginning and changes it to Christ. And he says, in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as we continue looking, talking about the third part of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. In the beginning, or in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Just like when John baptized Jesus and he came up from the water, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there present in the waters of baptism. Now here at the beginning of creation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all present at the birth of the universe. And so just as we see the triune God on display as Jesus breaks through the waters of baptism, we see it on display as the world breaks through the waters as the Spirit hovers. And so we need to learn to see God the way he reveals himself as three and one, Trinitarian in nature. And it doesn't matter how hard we try and how hard we wrestle. It's one of those things that are very difficult to reconcile our minds around. And it's one of the few things that Scripture actually asks us to just trust and believe, even though we can't fully understand it. We see time and time again that God gives us evidence and and things that we can rest our belief on. And here, he is just saying, because of all the other things that I've done for you, because of all you see in creation, you're going to have to trust me on this one. But we need to learn, because this is all about becoming better worshipers, as we see the character and the nature of God, we need to learn to worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making our worship Trinitarian because our God is Trinitarian. And so he's the only God, he's the triune God, and finally, he's the all-powerful God. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is the story of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of the Canaanite god Baal. And it's an amazing story because it really is a showdown. They decide that they're going to see which god can actually show up and show out and which god is worthy to be worshipped. And so if you know the story, they build two altars. And the idea was they were going to put a sacrifice on each altar and whichever god was able to light the fire without any assistance from his people would be the true god and worthy of worship. And so Elijah, being a good sport, allows the Canaanites to go first. The prophets of Baal, they, they put their offering, they do everything right, they start crying out to their God, and nothing happens. And they cry out some more, and nothing happens. And then Elijah offers some helpful encouragement, saying maybe you need to yell louder, maybe he can't hear you, maybe he slipped out for a moment. And they tried, and they tried, and they tried to the point where they were cutting themselves and laying on the altar, begging their God to do something but he couldn't. And then Elijah comes and shows out a little bit. And not only does he put the offering on the altar, but he has them pour jugs of water all over the altar. And he prays and he asks God to send fire. And the Bible says that fire from heaven consumes the altar, consumes the offering and licks up every drop of water. And the people that were seeing this turned from worshiping this false god and began to worship the god of Israel. Why? Because they caught a glimpse of his power, of his real power. At the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul gives warning and actually gives condemnation about turning from the creator God and worshiping a created thing because the created thing has no power or authority. And all of these old ancient gods were based on some form of nature, based on something that had been created, something that had no power in and of itself, but was only given power and authority through God. 
And so Genesis proclaims to that ancient Near Eastern world, just like it proclaims to us now, that this is the God that created the heavens and the earth. This is the God who created all things and the elements that we worship. And so because of that, no other God or deity or thing that has been created has any power or authority, especially when compared to the God who has the power to create the heavens and the earth from nothing. There's a beautiful thing hidden in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's this picture of God holding this formless, empty, dark world together by the power of his Spirit. And in the ancient world, and really even still today, water has been something that has mystified us. Even now, there are things about the depths of the ocean that we don't know and places that we haven't been with all of our technology and all the things that we have. There are still mysteries resting inside of the water. It's still something that can scare us a little bit. It's still something that can cause us a little bit of uncertainty and unease. And throughout the ancient world, the water was often pictured as something that would cause great fear and calamity. Because the seas couldn't be controlled. The waters would go wherever they want to go. And yet here in Genesis chapter 1, God is taking this uncontrollable force of nature and he's holding it together by the power of his spirit. Genesis begins by proclaiming the unimaginable reaches of God's power. Had a quote from the artist Michelangelo last week, so let's have another one today. The artist Michelangelo once said, Calabunga, dude. No, I'm sorry. I just really had to. It just felt, it was in here. I didn't want to do it, but I, I couldn't not do it. So the artist Michelangelo once said, if you knew how hard I worked, and this is a paraphrase, if you knew how hard I had to work, you really wouldn't consider what I do genius at all. If you considered all the training and all the hours that I put into honing my craft, you wouldn't think of it as as genius or awesome at all. You would just understand that it is really hard work. But that's what's shocking about God. God created all that exists. He spoke the heavens and earth into being and shaped a formless world to his exact designs and holds it all together and sustains it, and yet he doesn't break a sweat. Elijah showed the prophets of Baal like God shows us each and every moment of our lives the frailty of all these other things that we try to put our faith and our hope in. False gods don't have any power because they don't exist. And the things that we think that we can see, whether it's relationships or money or success or power or jobs, all of these things, they are just an inch deep and a mile wide and can fall apart and be taken away at a moment's notice. And yet, here is God. And so Israel says, exchange, or excuse me, Genesis says, exchange all these things that have no value or have no meaning. Don't put your hope and your trust in them, but look to the God who has this immeasurable power that in the beginning decided to create the heavens and the earth and held the earth in the palm of his hand and kept the raging waters in check and put them exactly where they should go and hung the stars in the sky. If there is a God with that kind of power, that is where you should place your trust and nowhere else. We have a calling here to recognize the power of God. When we sing songs, when we pray prayers, when we offer our confessions, when we do all the things that we're called to do as an act of worship, we need to realize the kind of God that we are lifting those things up. We should never ask anything in prayer 
without full expectation that God is capable of doing whatever God wants to do. We should never sing praises to God as we talk about the God who created all things and ever doubt that he is not fully powerful and wonderful and awesome and amazing. There should be expectation and anticipation in our worship and in our prayers, and we should trust that God, trusting that the God who held the waters of the world exactly where they should go has the power and authority to hold our lives when they feel like they're falling apart when we feel like things are out of control, when we feel like God is distant or that God can't be reached, remembering that God reaches down to us and even though he is all-powerful, he is also gentle and kind and compassionate, knowing how frail and broken we can be. And so we can trust in that all-powerful God. I love in Psalm 33, verse 1 through 9, It says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's our call as well to recognize that unbelievable power and authority of the only triune, all-powerful God, and to be able to step back and say, I don't fully know how to handle all of this, but I am going to be amazed and in awe of all that he's done, and so I'm going to use my life and my voice and everything that's been given to me to return to him praise and honor and glory. And so let's learn to be in awe as we worship this God who is bigger than we can imagine, stronger than we can know, more mysterious than we can grasp, and yet closer than we could ever dare believe. And so not only as we sing and pray and confess on Sundays, but each day of our life, with every breath, let's give praise back to God and be constantly in a state of awesome wonder because he is that profoundly unique and awesome. Let's pray.